Welcome back to the Napoleon Show, David Markham. How are you, my friend? I'm very fine, uh, Cameron. How about yourself? I'm very well, thank you. I've been looking forward to picking up where we left off in our last show. Now, uh, if I recall correctly, we were in the in the early stages of the Battle of Italy, and Napoleon had just beaten the Piedmontese. He'd had a couple of early victories at the Mondovi. But now we're getting to the Battle of Lodi, or Lodi. How do you pronounce it? Uh, Lodi, in, 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 in Italian, and uh, in, in a lot of uh, Romance languages, I is pronounced E, so it would be Lodi. Lodi. So, uh, now, from the reading that I've been doing about Lodi, it was a pretty important battle for Napoleon in terms of his vision of himself as somebody with a special destiny, wasn't it? It was a major turning point. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, it's, it's kind of ironic because the battle itself had relatively little in the way of military uh, importance. Uh, he was fighting, as we'll probably talk about, a, uh, an Austrian rear guard uh, and, and so on. Uh, but later... Uh, he he said that it was only after Lodi that he saw himself as a superior man capable of accomplishing things about which he had only previously dreamed. So it was one of those sort of making moments, if you will, in Napoleon's career, uh, and probably with good cause in the sense that he really took advantage of the situation and he handled all of the, the, the setup to the, to the combat in person, uh, and inspired his troops to do things that quite frankly would be difficult to inspire one's troops to do. You, you have to understand, uh, uh, the Austrian general Bulow is on uh, one side of the Adder River, uh, and, and uh, had left a, a rear guard of 10,000 men to hold uh, the bridge, and and he had cannons placed, and he had his men placed in in really a perfect setup to to pour fire onto uh, this this bridge, uh, which was about 200 yards long, which is quite long, and and about 12 feet wide, which is not very wide at all. So when you think about soldiers charging across a a battlefield, if you will, that has those dimensions with cannon and, and musket waiting for them on the other side, uh, it's really not very uh, easy. Uh, but, but Napoleon under, understood that, that, that Lodi, that that bridge had to be taken, uh, regardless. He climbs up into a, a church steeple and, and directs the, uh, the traffic as it were. A number of years ago, I had the privilege of climbing up into that very steeple, and unfortunately, there have been buildings built since uh, uh, Napoleon was there, and you don't have quite the sweeping view that he would have had, but, but you have a pretty good idea of what it was like. One of the things about Lodi, it's a, it's a classic uh, Italian village uh, uh, with narrow, winding streets, and, and all of them sort of leading in the general direction of the river, and, and you can 
can imagine those streets full of of soldiers who were, you know, waiting uh, orders and, and and waiting to get into the action. And there's uh, General Bonaparte up on top of the uh, of the tower, uh, setting the stage for the action, and and quite frankly, setting the stage for his own uh, destiny, his own uh, his own future. Now, uh, this was a bit of a distraction manoeuvre too, wasn't it? He was trying to get his troops over the Po, and he had to distract Bulow's attention. Well, yeah, although who's distracting who, who is hard to say. He has Bulow on the run, and, and Bulow is, is doing his best to beat, to, to, to beat it out of there, and, and leaves this rear guard to, to delay Napoleon. Uh, but in a sense, Bulow plays right into Napoleon's hands, because an awful lot of, of combat is, is, is image. And he's going to leave Napoleon an opportunity to to win what on the surface appears to be a great victory, one which, while, as I said earlier, may not have been hugely significant from a military standpoint, but which the the uh, uh, print artists, you know, the engraving artists, the Vidalic uh, artists, and and the uh, uh, folks of the day who who wrote stories about what was going on would have a field day. And here's the great General Bonaparte, you know, crushing the 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 hated Austrians uh, at the River Adda, and storming a bridge that was heavily protected wasn't uh, your normal kind of military tactic, was it? This was a fairly bold maneuver. Well, it was it was a bold maneuver, and I suppose somebody could even point out or, or suggest that it was that it was a foolish maneuver in the sense that you're asking people to to. Uh, uh, to, to run into the the, the teeth of, uh, of fire. Now it also has to be said that Napoleon was uh, was careful. He he understood that simply charging across that bridge was not going to be necessarily the the best move he ever made, and that he wanted to establish a a, a flanking action of some kind. Because he had to, to get to the Austrian artillery or he was going to be in trouble. So he, he sends the cavalry that he has up, up the Adder River, uh, to find a good place to cross, uh, and then to come down on the other side and, and surprise the, the unsuspecting Austrians, as it were. And, and this ultimately will be successful. He, he sends Massena, Berthier, and Lannes, uh, across the bridge after giving yet another one of his fiery uh, speeches. And, uh, you know, it, things sort of falter. It, it doesn't work uh, as well as it, it could at first. But then, just in the nick of time, here comes uh, the cavalry uh, along, and, and the Austrians ultimately uh, are, are routed. And uh, from what I'd read, the, um, yeah, the the previous victories that Napoleon had had up until this point, so we're talking May 1796 here. Right. The previous victories had been won predominantly by, uh, you know, clever strategy or tactical skill. But this was one of those times where, against heavy odds, he really had to incite his troops to extreme acts of courage, of bravery. They really, he really had to 
motivate them to do something which you know all of the generals thought was craziness as surely all of the men thought was craziness storming over this bridge but he did it he, he was able to inspire the men to go and fulfill this act of apparent madness and not only you know to carry it out but to carry it out successfully to win the skirmish and you know obviously that had a big effect on him as as we said earlier afterwards he said that that was the turning point where he realized that he was uh, somebody truly special from a leadership perspective and it's relatively easy to trace the beginnings of his ultimate ambition to that point in time when he realized what what men would do for him well, that's exactly, exactly right, Cameron. I mean, you have to realize that he's inspired these people. Uh, he's been a whirlwind of action. He, he gains his nickname, the little corporal here, because, you know, he's down on the riverfront personally positioning the, the artillery to fire across the river at the, at the Austrians. He gives one of his, his famous fiery speeches to try to in, uh, uh, influence his soldiers to, to, to go on what must have seemed like a suicidal mention and 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 to give you the quote which he wrote many years later by the way and and you always have to wonder something written that long after the fact is it is it a little bit of propaganda or or is it really true in this case i think it's probably really true he he writes it was only on the evening of lodi which was 10 may 1796 that i believed myself a superior man and that the ambition came to me of executing the great things which so far had been occupying my thoughts only as a fantastic dream. So it really is a, a turning point, at least according to him, and, and, and what better source do we have than, than his own words on something like this? Uh, in, in Napoleon's career, uh, Bulow is routed, or Bulow's rear guard is routed. Uh, more importantly, I think Napoleon's soldiers who already had a great deal of faith in him, now are beginning to think, this this guy can't be beat. This is really where you begin to get the, the myth of invincibility that follows Napoleon around for, for so much of his career. I mean, here was a, a situation, again, that our, our listeners need to think about. You've got, you know, a 200-yard long, 12-foot-wide uh, killing field, and you're you're charging on foot, with a little bit of artillery support, but you're charging on foot against a murderous fire. And, and at one point, the, the Austrians actually have a little bit of a counterattack and, and the, the, uh, French line falters, but it makes it across. And then, like I say, here comes the, the cavalry in the nick of time. And with the cavalry coming down to sweep across the, the, the Austrian artillery, uh, the, the jig is up and, and the Austrians, uh, uh, leave. So he gains, a, he gains a great deal of self-confidence and a great deal of, 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 of acclaim from both his soldiers and like I say the people back in Paris pick up on this thing and, and, and expand it immensely. There's all sorts of engravings and medallions and, and even some poetry and so on that was, that was composed, uh, extolling, you know, the, the virtues of the, the great conqueror of Lodi. And, and a few days later, Cameron, uh, Napoleon marches triumphantly into the Italian city of Milano or Milan. Uh, and he's seen there as a conquering hero, as, as, as a liberator. He, you know, 
thousands of people are cheering in the streets. He he moves into uh, the the palace. Uh, the city fathers come and pay him tribute. Uh, the 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 city coffers are him open, shall we say? And his soldiers are being paid uh, from local funds, uh, far more money than they ever could have imagined that this rather impoverished French government was going to to ever actually get them. And so their morale cr- clearly is improved. Uh, Napoleon is 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 treated almost like he's a a prince or, or a king, and his his generals, his his marshal is not no, no marshal yet. Generals are are treated in a similar way. They rename streets in his honor, uh, and and uh, of course he has a real political advantage here. Remember, he's Corsican, and the basic language of Corsica was Italian. So he's speaking to these people uh, in Italiano, you know, and 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 they're eating it up. I mean, they love it. They they've got this guy. He's kicked out the Austrians, at least in that area, and he's speaking Italian to them. Uh, you know, life is uh, life is good. Uh, his his officers uh, take advantage of the the uh, as I suggest in in. in Napoleon for dummies, the, the attentions of the local ladies. Napoleon, though, is, uh, uh, not gonna have anything to do with that. He's, he's desperately waiting for, uh, Josephine, uh, to, uh, to come. Uh, but in the meantime, he does enjoy the company of scholars and writers and artists and political leaders, uh, and, and everybody thinks of him as a hero. The the Austrians had controlled that area for generations. I, I think a hundred years or more. And and frankly, the Italians didn't really care too much for that. And so now here, this guy's French, but he speaks Italian, and at least he's not Austrian. So so life is pretty good all the way around. And indeed, as I I think I suggested in our last episode, if you go to the Museo del Risorgimento in Milano. Uh, the Museum of the Italian uh, Resurgimento, the the ultimate uh, unification movement of Italy. The first uh, couple of rooms are dedicated to Napoleon. Uh, Napoleon is seen as the first modern step toward Italian unity, and, and as such, today uh, he's he's still something of a hero to an awful lot of Italians. That's right. And there's, there's a couple of things that I wanted to point out uh, around that time. You mentioned before that this, at the Battle of Lodi was where Napoleon got the nickname the Little Corporal. Now, obviously, he was a general, but the term the Little Corporal, it has something to do with the role that he played in sighting the guns in that battle, didn't it? Well, exactly. He he was uh, he was doing the the role uh, that in the uh, artillery units a corporal might well have uh, done. You've got to remember a corporal was uh, a relatively uh, high uh, enlisted rank, and and the corporal would do that. And, and Napoleon was doing it. And here he's the general, and it was a it was a mark of endearment or a term of endearment to the. Uh, to 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 his men that was certainly not meant in any any way to be uh, to be negative uh, and this is really the Italian campaign and 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 I suppose Lodi as much as anything uh, represents the point in Napoleon's career where his soldiers begin to have such such great faith uh, in the 
in Napoleon, in, in, in this uh, little corporal, if you will. Uh, and Napoleon is able to, to build on that faith. Of course, nothing succeeds like success. He, he wins and he wins and he wins. And it's really easy for soldiers to believe in you, uh, when, when, when you're winning. Uh, Alexander and Caesar did the same thing. They were beloved by their, uh, men, uh, largely, uh, because they, they won, but also because of other characteristics. Napoleon, uh, showed early on his, his personal affection for his men. Uh, he would, he would go and talk to them and he would remember who they were. Uh, you're talking to someone here who has a terrible time remembering names of, of, of people, students and so on. Uh, but Napoleon would remember the names of people and then the campaigns they were in for years and years and years after this, you know, 15 years, 10 years later, he'd go to a soldier. Ah, yes, you, you were with me at Lodi. I remember, I remember you and he would tweak them on the ear or, 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 or whatever. And, and this is the kind of personal attention that, that the men absolutely loved. I wanted to point out, by the way, that, uh, uh, Lodi, of course, is still there today. It's a, it's a delightful little village of, of about 40,000 people. Uh, I, I was there in, I suppose it was, uh, 90, uh, seven and uh, 1997, and it still has those small, narrow, winding streets. There's there's a plaque commemorative on a building that's right opposite the bridge. The original bridge is is no longer there, but but a, a very similar uh, bridge is is uh, is there. So you have a real sense of it. It's it's not very far from where the the uh, original bridge was. Uh, you, you walk on the streets, and you can very, very well imagine it, the streets just full of, of French soldiers, all in, 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 in files, waiting to to move on to the bridge. Napoleon gave gave his his usual fiery speech, and as we discussed last time, it's it's really hard to imagine how many soldiers actually heard the speech. Uh, but you can imagine certainly the first. Few ranks in several streets there that feed into the river uh, might have. There's uh, there's some hotels there, a very fine uh, place or two to eat. I can assure you that I investigated each of those in person <laughs> uh, uh, with with great pleasure. And and if you're interested, uh, you can go to the archives, uh, the local archives, and and they have. Tons and tons of of documents, proclamations, uh, and, and so on, uh, of uh, of Napoleon and and you know before and after uh, the the Battle of Lodi. It's it's a fascinating place, and if any of our listeners ever get to this uh, region of of Italy, uh, I would imagine it would be a an absolute must stop on the itinerary. One of the um, the points that I like about the little corporal title, as as you alluded the very fact that you know it wasn't a general's job to get down there on the front line and and most soldiers were probably used to the generals uh staying back somewhere away from the uh the danger and uh just you know maneuvering things from a distance but napoleon obviously showed that he wasn't afraid to get out into the thick of it and i think that's one of the things that earned him so much respect and admiration from his troops and i think there's a lot of uh, parallels and lessons to be learned by leaders in uh, modern day life as well you know corporate leaders or government leaders about getting down rolling up your sleeves and getting into the thick of it not just for a photo opportunity but really putting yourself on the front line as a way to get the respect of the troops oh i absolutely agree 
Uh, this is one of the nice things about history. You know, you, you, you can see what people have done in the past and, and you can draw conclusions from that. Napoleon is probably the last of the leaders who, who is able to effectively himself, uh, lead lead soldiers into battle and I'm talking now more later when he's first council or, or emperor uh, you don't tend to think of major political leaders leading soldiers into battle uh, and, and even beyond that as you suggested generals quite frequently would be uh, a bit beyond, behind the, the, the battle lines the, the theory always being that you don't want to lose your general uh, in this sense Napoleon really has more in common with Alexander the Great, who who led his soldiers into battle and received, you know, goodness knows how many wounds for his efforts that ultimately weakened him and and, and causes help causes death. And of course, Julius Caesar, who who is leading his his soldiers into battle. Uh, at the Battle of Elysia, you know, uh, against Vercingetorix, uh, it is it is Caesar who will rush to fill the void when there seems to be a problem. Uh, and at least in these early stages with Napoleon, you you get some of that. Now it's also true that he was in the in the uh, the, the church tower directing traffic, and and he's not always going to be in the very front lines. But he was a much more proactive leader. He was much more in the front uh, than an awful lot of uh, generals uh, of his day, and certainly compared to modern day generals, I mean it would be akin to to Eisenhower uh, stepping uh, onto the beach at Normandy uh, with the first wave of troops. Well, no, none of his advisors uh, and his political uh, superiors would ever have allowed Eisenhower to do that, or or Churchill uh, to do that, or for that matter, De Gaulle to do that. It simply wouldn't have been done. But Napoleon might very well, along with Caesar and Alexander, might very well have been among the very first people to land on the beach at Normandy. Mm. There's a couple of quotes uh, out of my books that I like too from around this period. Um, just uh, apparently a few days after the Battle of Lodi, he confided to Marmont, the directory have seen nothing yet. In our days, no one has conceived anything great. It is for me to set the example. I always like that. And then I like um, another quote. Apparently, after he entered Milan... What are you doing to your microphone there, David? You're banging around. I'm sorry. I was adjusting my earpiece. It didn't occur to me that would make a noise. Sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, After he enters Milan, there's a uh, delegation brought him there who brought him the keys to the city. And to the delegation leader, Napoleon said, I hear you've got men under arms. Just 300 to keep order, replied the Italian. Adding with characteristic flattery, they're not real soldiers like yours, <laughs> which Napoleon, <laughs> Napoleon apparently liked. So anyway, so he enters Milan. Now, l- let's uh, recall for the listeners that uh, we're talking sort of the middle of May here, 1796, which is he took command of the Army of Italy on March the 2nd. So after a long period of defeats and and really getting nowhere with the Army of Italy, Napoleon has stepped into the the leadership position and within eight or nine weeks has had a string of minor victories and then enters Milan. And he sends the uh, directory back home in Paris a letter saying, the tricolor flies over Milan, Pavia, Como and all the towns of Lombardy. 
So the first part of his strategy that he had set out when he was uh, in the map room has has come to pass, and yet, you know, you would think that the directory would be pretty happy with him, would say, keep it up, son, good work, uh, but they don't. <laughs> they send him a letter basically saying, oh, look, uh, we're sending someone to help you uh, run things over there. General Kellerman's on his way, which Napoleon, <laughs> this is, again, one of, one of my favourite moments in Napoleon's career. You know, you often wonder how you would personally handle something like this. You've had a string of victories, you're a young man, you're riding high, and your bosses go, yeah, you know what, we're going to send someone out to uh, share the command with you. Now, what do you do? Do you say, okay, very well, yes, sir, or do you say, screw you, I'm going home, which is exactly pretty much what Napoleon threatened to do, didn't he? Well, I see, that that's right, uh, and you have to understand... The, the point of view of the uh, directoire of the directory, uh, they're sitting here and they've got this, this young general who has been, at least it seems, extraordinarily successful. As you suggest, a lot of the, the, the victories were relatively minor and they were largely of the Piedmontese, which was not a really effective military force. Nevertheless, he's done far more than the previous French army under its leaders had been able to do. Uh, and, and he's negotiating armistice and so forth, and he's sending all sorts of riches back uh, to, to, to Paris. And it's sort of good news and bad news from the standpoint of the directory, the the governing uh, committee of uh, France at the time. The good news, of course, is that you are glad to see the French winning. You're glad to see your enemies defeated. You are especially glad to see uh, the the riches beginning to trickle into Paris because they are broke and they're they're an absolutely incompetent group of people when it comes to managing the economy of France. But the political scene in those days was extremely unstable. There had been all sorts of uh, coups and counter coups and changeovers and this person's in and that person's out kinds of things. And as a result, those people who were in were always rather nervous about the possibility that somebody would like to replace them. And they were at least somewhat nervous that Napoleon was interested in, 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 in claiming some kind of power. Uh, and, and then their, their concern may or may not have been, uh, totally legitimate at that point. Uh, I think Napoleon's ambition probably ha- had some kind of advancement in mind. It's a little hard to say just, just exactly how much. Uh, but they decided, well, oh, here's what we'll do. We will dilute Napoleon. We will send, uh, General Francois Kellerman, uh, to, to, to join Napoleon. And, and we'll give Kellerman, uh, the, the army of the northern part of Italy, and he will fight the Austrians. And Napoleon will go in, into the southern part and campaign against the, the papal states and, and possibly, uh, Naples, the kingdom of, of Naples. Well, this is, this is not good news for Napoleon on, on, on all sorts of fronts. First of all, uh, you want to be fighting the Austrians. The Austrians are the real enemy. Uh, the, the Papal States are, are part of the enemy 
in a sense, but but they're not real strong. And to conquer them is to is to conquer the weaker part of your of your opposition, and and also to to make moves against the Catholic Church. And while the revolution had been very anti-Catholic, an awful lot of French citizens still believed in in Catholicism and 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 still were religiously uh, uh, you know loyal to to the Pope. And and it might not do you an awful lot of good to be seen. Uh, strictly in terms of of attacking uh, the Pope. The other problem is that, that Kellerman was a real bona fide French hero. He's the one who would beat the Austrians at the Battle of Valmy, uh, which was the uh, 1792, the, in, in 1792, the first French revolutionary victory over the Austrians, which really sort of turned things around uh, back then. And Napoleon, in terms of his own ambitions, could very easily imagine someone like Kellerman fighting the Austrians, completely overshadowing uh, someone like this young General Bonaparte, who was merely having victories against the Papal States. So he wasn't very interested, and as you uh, suggested, he writes a directory immediately. He says, you know, dividing our command makes no sense, as he says, uh, uh, that uh, one bad general is better than two good ones. Uh, and and he says, listen, if, if you really want to get rid of me, fine. Give it to Kellerman uh, and and sort of unwritten and all that is and and maybe you can just you know I'll just kiss the whole thing off and and and, and you won't have and, and as Richard Nixon would have said you won't have General Bonaparte to kick around anymore <laughs> uh, and 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 uh, that would have of course been devastating to the Directory uh, they would be seeing it from a public relations standpoint that they were edging out the great conquering hero a hero of the people and uh, who's to say that Kellerman would have had the same success and would be able to send the same riches uh, uh, to, to Paris and of course the papal states were full of riches and if Napoleon ends up quitting well, they've got no one that they can trust to send down there to conquer the papal states and, and loot the Vatican. So the directory blinks. And they say, yeah, we didn't really mean it. You know, we all, fine, <clears throat> don't worry about it. Uh, you're still, you're still our main man. <laughs> and, and the, the, uh, the, the crisis, uh, uh, passed by. I, I, I'm going to read the, the full famous uh, quote here because I think it's it's terrific. He writes back, he says, Kellerman will command the army as well as I, for no one is more convinced than I am that the victories are due to the courage and audacity of the men. But I believe that to unite Kellerman and myself in Italy is to lose all. I cannot serve willingly with a man who believes himself to be the first general in Europe. And besides, I believe that one bad general is better than two good ones. War, like government, is a matter of tact. Unity of command is the most important thing in war, he said later on when he was at St. Helena. But war, like government, is a matter of tact. I love that in the response. You can almost, I mean, you can read between the lines and he's going, you cheeky bastards. Here I am, winning you these victories. <laughs> You're trying to basically send this guy in to, to reap the, the victory, uh, reap the, you know, the, the future rewards of this. Uh, <laughs> war, like government, 
is a, is a matter of tact. Now, of course, he could have lost everything here. They could have gone, okay, well, fine. You know, you take your bat and your ball and you go home. He was really, you know, betting the farm on the fact that they, you know, didn't want the public relations disaster, as you said. And, of course, he, uh, he gets away with it. He uh, keeps his command. He goes on. And uh, well, goes on to to battle the Austrians. Well, he's betting the farm, but it's a pretty good bet. Uh, he he knows politics as well as anyone at this point. He knows what he's done. He knows, uh, you know, that that he's really quite the the, the thing on the streets of Paris. Uh, and and I think, in a sense, you could also say he's calling the the directory's bluff. He says, okay, uh, you know who I am. You know how popular I am. You know the success I've had. Uh, go ahead. I dare you. And they backed down. And I'm not so sure that Napoleon didn't know that they really had to back down. For all of Kellerman's cachet, I mean, he was a genuine hero. And he, he, he was a good general. There's no, no doubt about it. But he was 61. Exactly, which was, by the way, I'm 60, so that was, he was a young uh, fellow, uh, <laughs> but, but, he, but he, he wasn't as young as Napoleon, uh, and in those days, uh, 61 was, was a lot older, uh, although when we get to Waterloo and talk about Blucher, you know, who was 70, uh, you know, 76. Uh, seven, yeah, 76, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a different story. Age doesn't always imply uh, uh, an ability to, to to be uh, very successful, as I hasten to point out to any number of younger people, such as yourself. <laughs> but <laughs> in our chess game, I, I like to point out for our for, for our for our for our for our listeners. I can't uh, believe you're pulling that out. Cam, Cameron and I are playing chess, and 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 I think that Cameron is probably a better chess player than I am, and I think in the long run that will be seen. But but nevertheless, this old geezer is is at least holding his own uh, against uh, against him. And, and that's interesting because as big a fan as I am of Napoleon, Napoleon was apparently not a particularly good chess player. Uh, so, so perhaps uh, I will end up uh, losing more than I thought. But, uh, but that's 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 one of the things that's come out of all of this. And and uh, I I defeated Cameron in the first game, but he is in the process of of likely trouncing me in the second game. So uh, I don't have quite the the uh, Italian uh, campaign uh, going for me as of yet. Oh, I can't believe you pulled that out. Oh, you, you wait. You're, you're going to regret that in a few I don't future doubt episodes. You're really going to regret that. So, so, so let's move on here. So Napoleon, um, he, uh, he he gets. What do you mean? I'm going to regret it. I, I I complimented you. I said you were a great chess player. Yeah, well, I'm not going to let it leave there, man. I'm going to rub it in every, with every victory after this, man. I'm going to make I see. out of it. I see. Okay. I'm not going to be magnanimous in success. Don't you worry. <laughs> So, um, so now Napoleon's got command again. Uh, you know, he's got he's got complete command. So now he just goes on an absolute blitzkrieg across Italy. He uh, marches down on the papal states. Uh, yeah, he has like six weeks to swoop down on the papal states. He, he, he swoops down there, seizes Leghorn. Uh, captures gold, captures ships, because there was, uh, a, a Leghorn was an English commercial and banking enclave. Um, then he scoots back to Milan, 
having marched 300 miles in under six weeks. He's basically going swooping all over Italy, seizing booty and indemnities and shipping gold back to France. And then it all comes to a climax at uh, Arcola, uh, another bridge. This is this is the most famous of his bridges, right? This is the one that has been uh, most commemorated in paintings and engravings and that kind of thing. Tell us about well, the sure. Battle of Arcola. Well, and he's he's had other successes along the way. He's he's defeated the papal states quite a bit. He's he's liberated cities such as Bologna, which has the oldest you know, European university, uh, and and Florence, the the great city of, of of the Renaissance, or as 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 the British say, the the Renaissance. Uh, and 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 really, he's adding to his image as a conquering hero, uh, and so on. Uh, there's no question, and we're we're sort of uh, uh, skipping over Josephine. We'll come back to her, I suspect, in a few minutes. Uh, but he still has uh, the Austrians in in, in Mantua. Uh, there's a there's a siege of Mantua going on, and uh, uh, now he's going to come across. Uh, uh, the Austrians uh, at a, this, this famous bridge at, at Arcola uh, that you mentioned off. Uh, the Austrians uh, uh, are on one side of the uh, Alpone River, or the, the Alpone River, uh, and, and the French uh, were on the other side. Uh, and the battle for this bridge took, takes place on November 15th. Uh, and, and really, not much of anything is happening. The, 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 the French uh, are unable to make any kind of headway. Uh, and the, the General Bonaparte uh, is said to have snatched the, the French flag and, and uh, uh, leads a charge across uh, the bridge. And the bridge is a low bridge, and it's not very wide. And you know, you have all these soldiers pushing and shoving, trying to get across. And at one point, uh, General Bonaparte is actually pushed into the river, uh, where his brother Louis and his uh, old friend from school days, uh, General Marmont, uh, pull uh, him out. Uh, the irony of all this, of course, is that that particular episode didn't lead to much of anything. It wasn't for a, a couple of days uh, that uh, uh, the French were actually able to to seize the bridge and and get across. But but Cameron, as you say, uh, this grabbing of the flag has become one of the iconic episodes in Napoleon's career. Really, in a lot of ways, more than the bridge at Lodi, because Napoleon didn't lead the charge at, at Lodi, although there are uh, there's a few images out there that show that he did. He, he really didn't, but here he did. And so you've got snuff boxes and engravings and, and porcelains and other kinds of things showing uh, this young general Bonaparte with his sword facing forward and and holding the flag with the other hand uh, and uh, uh, leading this 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 grand charge. Uh, it's it's really one of those moments in Napoleon's career that comes to define who he who he was. 
Yeah, so he gets a, he, he, from what I've read, he had a horse shot out from underneath him at one stage, and then he, he grabbed the tricolour and was going to race across the bridge leading Ogero's troops, but gets pulled back by somebody who basically has a little bit more sense and says, General, you will get yourself killed if you fall, we are lost. You shall not go farther, this is not your place. And then, you know, he, uh, and then apparently he, he also got pushed into the canal, and there was just disaster. But obviously, yet again, he was, uh, according to the legend and the mythology anyway, was ready to grab the flag and put himself directly in the firing line to lead the troops over for one more attack. And again, I, I think this says a lot about the way that he was perceived by the troops. And, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit hard for me to tell 200-odd years later uh, how much of this is you know, propaganda that Napoleon created uh, afterwards, but... There seems to be enough people who were there at the time who had reported on it that it, it, there must have been elements of it, at least, that were true, correct? Oh, I, I completely agree, uh, Cameron. I think that uh, Napoleon probably did this. Uh, how far across the bridge he got, how how, how desperate was the situation when, when he was pushed in is, is a little hard to say. Uh, the bridge is still there. There's a, a monument or two. Uh, it's it's really neat to to walk across and, and imagine what it, what it might have been like. Uh, and and uh, it's just one of those moments in his history that, like I said before, have come to, for whatever reason, have come to define him. And and uh, when when people sort of mentally list out images they have of Napoleon, uh, the bridge at, at Arcola is is usually among them. I've got a I've got a, a letter here that he wrote to the to the directory on the uh, 19th after Arcola. He wrote it from uh, Verona. He talks about the Battle of Arcola. He says, I am so exhausted that I cannot give you the detail of the movements preceding the Battle of Arcola, which has just decided the fate of Italy. And he goes on to say, uh, The enemy, however, had thrown several regiments into the village of Arcola in the midst of the marshes and canals. This village held our advance guard and check all day. Augero, seizing a flag, carried it to the end of the bridge. Cowards, he shouted to his men, do you fear death? He stayed there for several minutes. We had got to carry the bridge. I went to the front myself. I asked the soldiers if they were still the victors of Lodi. My appearance produced such an impression on the men that I decided to attempt the passage once more. General Lon, already twice wounded, returned and received a third wound. General Vignol was wounded. We had to give up the frontal attack on the village and wait for the arrival of General Gyo's column from Albarido. They did not come till the night. And so he, he mentions just in passing there that... Uh, oh, sorry, here we go to the next bit here. There was never a more desperate fight than Arcola. This is a, a letter that he wrote to Carnot. I have hardly any generals left. Their devotion and courage are unparalleled. Lan came to the battlefield from a sickbed. On the first day, he was twice wounded. He was lying on a bed of suffering when he was informed that I myself had gone to the head of the column. He jumped out of bed, got on a horse and sought me out. As he couldn't stand on his feet, he had to remain on horseback and at the head of the bridge of Arcola, a shot struck him down senseless. I can assure you that all was needed to give us victory. So he mentions in a couple of letters there that he was out the front, but it doesn't seem to be the big dramatic effect that uh, later accounts <laughs> make of it. He doesn't talk about, you know, I was down there thinking that I was going to get my head cut off by the enemy and all those sorts of things. But he, <laughs> well, but, and, and, but there was an element of truth. He must have been out uh, yeah, at the front of the troops at some stage. 
Oh, I think I think that's absolutely true, and and it's it's interesting because in in the letter you read, which is you know a wonderful letter, uh, Napoleon is almost uncharacteristically giving an awful lot of credit uh, to to other people, uh, other generals. Uh, oftentimes, Napoleon is criticized with with some justification as having grabbed a lot of the. The, the glory for himself, uh, and, and, but in this case, while he certainly is pointing out his his own actions, he's he's pointing out also the the bravery and 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 the the uh, ambition and, and 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 so on of of other people, Lon and so on. The story about Lon always reminds me of the story, and I forget which battle it was where this old sergeant had his uh, uh, leg amputated and is said to have. Uh, after the leg was amputated and, and uh, sewed up, hopped off on his remaining leg, crying "Vive l'Empereur!" You know. <laughs> so here's Lon, here's Lon coming off of a sick bed, you know, propped up onto his horse because he can't walk, uh, and and helping to to lead this charge. Uh, it's it's a fascinating story, and like I say, it's it's just one of those images. Even though, like Lodi, it's. It's not really a, a, a huge engagement. Certainly, this this portion of the engagement's not huge because it wasn't uh, all that successful. The success came a little bit later. Uh, I've got a few other letters here that I want to ra- read out from around this time because they tickle me. Um, after the battle in Rivoli, which was uh, around about the same time, Napoleon writes uh, a, a letter or uh, makes a. a you know, a, a statement to the, the soldiers where he says, Soldiers, I am no longer proud of you. You have shown no discipline, no steadiness, no courage. You have abandoned every position. Men of the 39th and of the 85th, you are no longer French soldiers. Chief of Staff, put on their flags. They are no longer of the Army of Italy. So he could give it and he could take it away as well. Napoleon giveth and Napoleon taketh away. There's also some some letters uh, to Josephine around this time, which I love as well. Uh, you know, we, we mentioned in uh, the last show that he married Josephine and literally within a couple of days set off on the campaign. And so he's yeah, he's been away from her for several months now, but they, they are newly married. Well, and sure, and... And, 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 you know, Napoleon, I'm not going to let you steal my thunder. I've got a letter here, too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, our, our listeners will recall that, uh, Cameron is, is, has, has lots and lots of letters here. And he, he, he quickly reads them and, and I'm sitting here with my copy twiddling my thumbs. But, uh, uh, the, the, the element with Josephine is, is really very interesting. Uh, you know, Josephine, uh, could have joined him from the very beginning, chose chose not to, and uh, but Napoleon writes a lot of letters. <clears throat> Whatever else we can say about Napoleon, he writes letter after letter after letter to the Directory, to to any number of other people, uh, and uh, and also to uh, uh, to his wife. Now, Josephine is not nearly as enamored with Napoleon as Napoleon is uh, with her. Uh, and she is not at all interested in torrid leathers. Uh, Napoleon is more like a classic newlywed husband. You know, he, uh, 
He writes, I have not passed a day without loving you. I have not passed a night without clasping you in my arms. I have not taken a cup of tea without cursing that glory and that ambition which keep me separated from the soul of my life, and so on. And so when Josephine writes back, uh, she writes uh, uh, using the formal French term for you, which is vous, V-O-U-S, as opposed to tu, uh, T-U. And, and let me... Uh, let me read a, 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 a letter here which was written uh, and, uh, during this period of time. And actually, I read excerpts here before. Just, you can, and, and imagine this, this young man writing this torrid letter. But he's also frustrated. I have not passed a day without loving you. I have not passed a night without clasping you in my arms. I have not taken a cup of tea without cursing that glory and that ambition which keep me separated from the soul of my life. In the midst of affairs, at the head of troops, moving through camps, my adorable Josephine is alone in my heart, fills my mind, absorbs my thoughts. If with the speed of the torrent of the Rhone I separated myself further and further from you, it is that I may see you again the sooner. If in the midst of the night I rise to work, it is to hasten by some days the arrival of my sweet love. And yet, in your letters of the 23rd and the 26th Vantos, you treat me to a voo. Voo yourself. Ah, wicked one, how could you have written these letters? How cold they are. Woe to the man who should be the cause. May he suffer all the agonies that would be mine were guilt proved. Hell hath not torments, nor the furies snakes enough. Voo! Voo! <laughs> well, you, you get the picture, uh, and if you have a, a letter to counter that with, you're, you're, you're certainly welcome, because there's lots of them uh, that, are, that have been published since then. And, and Napoleon is getting more and more frustrated. He is trying to get her to show up. She's not showing up, and the letters that she writes are not exactly uh, all that they could be. And finally, he says, that's it. I need her now. He defeats the Piemontese. He sends General Okiyamura, the future marshal and brother-in-law, to Paris. Mura arrives, you know, a little before the Battle of Lodi, and writes back to Napoleon that, that Josephine is in ill health and cannot travel. Well, Napoleon, of course, is sort of hoping that's because she's pregnant. And, and, and so he figures, well, she's pregnant. I mean, she can't travel. That's no problem. Uh, but on and on it goes. And in the meantime, uh, she's still not uh, uh, coming back. And as it turns out, there are some reasons why she is not coming back. She has found herself a new friend, <laughs> a young lieutenant, Hippolyte Charles, a staff officer to, a staff officer to General Victor Leclerc. Uh, he was a staff officer to a general who didn't have much to do, and so he had a lot of spare time. And he and Josephine uh, spent uh, uh, lots of uh, hours together. Uh, I suggest uh, sardonically in one of my books, no doubt discussing Napoleon's Italian victories long into the night, or not. Uh, Charles was the the very image of a dashing hussar, the light cavalry, and charming and humorous, 
and uh, one gathers uh, good in other areas of romantic endeavor uh, as well. And so that relationship becomes rather torrid, and therefore Josephine hasn't the slightest interest in returning, or not returning, but going uh, to Italy. But she does have this inconvenient husband, and she does have, uh, you know, a need to, to, you know, be with him somewhere along the line. And so she finally uh, agrees that she will go. But she arranges to travel in a coach to Milan with no other than Lieutenant Charles as her personal aide-de-camp. Now, you talk about a deal. <laughs> you are going to go see your husband, but you're going to take this long, uh, rather... Uh, uh, slow trip to Milan with your lover uh, as your personal aide de camp, which allows him to travel in her her carriage and so forth uh, and so on. And so uh, she finally gets there to Milan. Napoleon's delighted. He rushes out to the outskirts to to meet her carriage. He's he's introduced to her aide de camp, and he either doesn't quite get it or he sort of wonders about it but chooses to ignore it Uh, but you know uh, as far as he's concerned he's this great hero now he has his lovely wife with him Uh, life is good yeah, I've got to read some of the letters that you know are leading up to her joining him in Milan. Where obviously uh, you read one before, he wasn't quite happy with the way that she was uh, responding or not responding to his letters. Well, you have to imagine for those people who don't who don't speak French, uh, a lot of languages English doesn't really have it, but a lot of languages have a formal uh, and, and an informal way of addressing people. And if you address someone who is entitled to the informal, such as a spouse or a child, and you address them in the formal, it's, it's, it, it, it can be insulting. It's clearly a very cold approach. And for Josephine to uh, address her husband using the formal vu, uh, really ought to be sending up all sorts of warning flags, uh, that that there's something going on here. There's something wrong, and and he understands that. He says, "Voo, voo yourself." You know? he, he writes to her on the seventeenth. I write frequently, dear friend, and you very seldom. You are perverse and wicked, very wicked, and your conduct is frivolous. Don't you think it's a little too bad to deceive a poor husband, a tender lover? Must he lose every claim because he is at a distance, loaded with work, fatigue, and care? Without his Josephine, without her love, what would there be left on earth? And then on the uh, 17th, uh, again from Modena, he writes, I was in the saddle all day yesterday. Today I'm in bed. Fever and a bad headache have prevented me from writing to my adorable friend. 
But her letters have reached me. I have pressed them to my heart and to my lips, and the pangs of absence have vanished. For a moment I could imagine you at my side, no longer capricious and vexed, but gentle, tender, with all that graciousness and goodness that belonged only to Josephine. It was a dream. Guess whether it cured my fever. Your letters are as frigid as 50 years old. They suggest <laughs> 15 years of marriage. They convey the friendship, the sentiments of the winter of life. Fie, Josephine. It is wicked. It is bad. It is treasonable of you. What more can you do to make me unhappy? Love me no more, eh? That's already done? Hate me? Well, let it be. Everything degrades save hatred. But indifference with its marble pulse, its steady stare, its even step... And then he goes on to write on the uh, 2nd of November to Josephine, I love you no longer. Indeed, I hate you. You are a wicked woman, stupid, tactless and foolish. You have stopped writing to me. You don't love your husband. You know how much pleasure your letters give him and you don't write him so much as six haphazard lines. How is your day spent, madam? What are the m important matters that give you no time to write to your good lover? What passion <laughs> stifles the love, the tender and constant love that you promised him? So, uh, you know. And welcome, wel welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Let's See Who Can Be Reading a Letter More Dramatically Than the Other. <laughs> well, well, well done and, and wonderful letters. I, I have to, I, I don't know if our readers could hear me chuckling, our listeners could hear me chuckling in the background, uh, when he, he writes that, uh, you know, your letters read like someone who's been married 15 years. Uh, I, I've been married Almost a quarter of a century now. We've, we've been together for a quarter of a century, 25 years, and there's a possibility that we'll, we'll have to be separate for a, 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 a period of time due to a job-related issue. And, and I sincerely hope that my letters uh, uh, and, and my wife's letters to me, I guess more appropriately, are a lot hotter uh, than, than Josephine's letters. And, and we've certainly been along a, a lot more than 15 years. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's, it's just amazing. Amazing uh, how how chilly uh, she was, and and Napoleon Napoleon sees it, but I don't know if he really sees it. A lot of what he writes, I don't know if this is just rhetorical excess on his part, or or if he really suspects uh, when he says, you know, how do you spend your days? Is he is he probing? Is he hinting that he thinks there is a Hippolyte Charles in her uh, life or not? Uh, I've never really been able to figure out whether he was truly suspicious of, jo of Josephine. Josephine had never been a, a model of purity and chastity. After all, she had been, as we discussed, Paul Barras' mistress, and she had, had been around quite a bit more than that. So Napoleon has to have figured that you leave a woman like this alone in Paris, uh, you know, who, who knows what might happen. But he was so idealistic regarding marriage and his love for her that he may have very well thought, well, she surely is the same way with me, but her letters just don't reflect it. I, I really don't know. Well, obviously, he was suspicious of uh, Charles later on because he sent him away, didn't he? He had him uh, banished. Well, sure. You know, I mean, the guy's hanging around her constantly, and and uh, and and he sent him back to Paris, if I recall. But but uh, it's just, you know, I, I suspect that they were not real subtle about things. And there was lots of rumours, I, I think, emanating out of Paris eventually, from his family and from uh, you know his uh, generals when they were back there that something 
was going wrong. But uh, this is, you know, they've been married about six months here. So, I mean, he has been on campaign for the vast majority of that time. But uh, the, the, the marriage kind of went off the rails fairly early on. Now, let's get yes. back to the military side of things. After um, the Battle of Arcola, I like a summary that was written uh, later on by the, the German historian, famous military historian, um, von Clausewitz, who summed up Napoleon's success at the Battle of Arcola as follows. What is it then that turned this hotly contested battle into a victory for Napoleon? It was a better use of the elements of tactics, a greater bravery in the field, a superior mind, and boldness without any limits. So there you go. That was von Clausewitz's summary. And then Napoleon went on after Arcola, which is where he really started to crush the Austrians, to the Battle of Rivoli, which is another one of those famous names that is, you know, when you go to the Arc de Triomphe and many of the Napoleonic uh, sites around France, you'll see mention of the Battle of Rivoli alongside the Battle of Arcola. Tell us what happened at the Battle of Rivoli, David. Well, uh, basically, the Battle of Rivoli, uh, Napoleon is outnumbered, uh, uh, and and uh, he's... Uh, uh, in, in a really tough uh, position, but he rallies uh, his soldiers, uh, uh, moving from from the uh, siege of Mantua. He 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 meets uh, uh, them near the, the 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 Austrians near Rivoli. He's outnumbered. He's surrounded, uh, but he deploys his soldiers in a way that that counteracts the 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 disadvantages. Has some luck and 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 ends up winning a major victory, uh, and and then he goes on very quickly. Uh, the French do to defeat uh, uh, General Provera uh, and Alvinci. And and uh, relieves the siege of Mantua, which we haven't really talked about, but the, you know there was uh, French forces tied up there. Uh, and essentially, you know, at the end of the day, he's got a clean sweep. He has defeated the Austrians. Uh, he's defeated the Piedmontese. He has uh, uh, defeated the, the 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 Papal States. Uh, there's really uh, no one left. Uh, for him to uh, defeat, uh, he he defeats the papal states and 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 gets uh, 30 million francs uh, being paid to the directory, as well as lots of uh, uh, works of art and so on, uh, hand selected by by uh, Gaspar Mongi, and and of course the directory is delighted. They're getting art, they're getting artifacts, and they're getting hard cold gold currency. Uh, and yet Napoleon also, you know, is, is sort of decent to the Pope, keeps, keeps the Pope, uh, uh, not too terribly upset with the terms. And, uh, at 28 years old, Napoleon is showing a fair amount of, of political savvy, of a huge amount of military savvy. Uh, he, uh, he pushes the Archduke uh, Charles, the brother of the Emperor, uh, uh, back, and literally uh, Napoleon's forces move into Austria, and they're within sight of the capital of Vienna. Now, this is stunning to the Austrians. The Austrians were an old line 
uh, military and political power uh, in Europe. They thought of themselves as representing all that was right and proper. And yet here's this young upstart French general who's pretty much kicked their butts all over uh, central and northern Italy and now is in a position to move on their capital, the Palace of Schönbrunn, the emperor himself. And so uh, Napoleon is able to secure on the 18th of April of 1797 a preliminary agreement at Lobin. Uh, and then on October 17th of 1797, uh, the f- French, uh, under Napoleon, and the Austrians agree to the Treaty of Campo Formio. Uh, where Austria gives up the Duchy of Milan and agrees to make peace with France. They lose Belgium. They recognize France's natural borders on the left bank, the western side of the Rhone, of the Rhine River. Uh, and essentially, uh, Napoleon is, as a general, creating a treaty and essentially committing his country to a treaty. A treaty, by the way, which has its problems uh, for the long term, but which in the short term appears to be uh, extraordinarily stupendous. Among other things, by the way, uh, General Lafayette, who had been imprisoned by the Austrians, uh, is, is, is released from Austrian uh, uh, prison as a result of this uh, uh, treaty. Uh, Napoleon may very well regret that in 1815 when, when Lafayette is instrumental in, in, in his uh, political defeat uh, during the Hundred Days. Uh, but at the time, it's, it's, it's a great political move and makes Napoleon look even better. Uh, but what people forget sometimes is generals don't do this. Generals don't negotiate treaties. Generals win victories, and the politicians negotiate the treaty. But the treaty was negotiated uh, by, by Napoleon, uh, sent to Paris essentially as a fait accompli, and Paris, no fool, uh, recognizes reality and the treaty is accepted and the campaign of northern Italy is over. And we said, I think, in our very first episode of this series that, you know, Napoleon is often called a warmonger and is accused of, you know, starting wars across Europe. And, and we, we said that that wasn't our, our reading of history, that uh, the wars were usually started by the opposing forces, or, or at least threatened by the opposing forces at the very least, and that Napoleon spent much of his time signing uh, treaties which were then broken by third parties. And this is, of course, as you say, the first major peace treaty that he signs whilst still a general. Still a general. And was a was a major turning point. The, the war had been going on for six years, I think, at that stage, and uh, you know, the, I think everyone had had enough of it. He had. This was April 1797, as you said, and he left for the campaign in March of 1796. So 13 months he had been in Italy and uh, had been fighting and defeating the Austrians. So it was a. It was a, that's a long time to be out on campaign. Well, it sure was. It was a, by the standards of the day, it was a very long time, uh, but extraordinarily successful. And and I can't end our discussion of the Treaty of Campo Formia without pointing out that, as unusual as it was that a general would negotiate a peace treaty, in in the same effort, he actually forms a new country. 
I mean, here he's just a general, and he he takes the former Austrian territories of Milan, uh, Bologna, and Modena, and he he forms from those areas a new nation, the Cisalpine Republic, uh, totally unheard of, and and he. He organizes his government, writes its new constitution, appoints its first leaders, uh, and the the uh, the republic over over the next number of years adds a little territory here and there. Uh, and in 1805 becomes the kingdom of Italy, uh, which was a major step in the long term of the the reunification of the Italy that that we know uh, uh, together. He also creates the Ligurian Republic. Uh, and uh, out of some of the area controlled by Genoa. And in both of these two republics, he promotes the ideals of the French Revolution. Uh, he, he, he promotes uh, equality, uh, uh, giving all social classes, all political parties, you know, a role in, in the new governments. Uh, and it was really, it was really spectacular. It, I, I don't know of any example in history like it where a general who, who wins a, a, a number of battles and, and creates a peace treaty and out of that peace treaty creates two brand new nations. You can well imagine why the Italians see him as a liberator and a founder of Italian unity. Uh, but all that, not, you know, all that said, Napoleon returns to Paris. He, he drops by the treaty negotiations and so on, and and he is a major hero. He is uh, thronged uh, by people in the streets. Uh, he is cheered. Uh, the streets are named after after his victories, and I suspect that next time we will talk a great deal more about that. Well, in the next episode, that's right, we're going to talk about the next phase of his career. He returns to Paris. He, uh, they're, they're looking to get rid of him. He, he ends up uh, going to Egypt, which is another amazing period. Of, he's still a very young man. He's still only in his late 20s, uh, you know, very young. But uh, the Battle of Italy, the, the Army of Italy, 12, 13 months on campaign, it's uh, been an exciting ride. I'm, I'm out of breath. How about you? Well, it's, it's, it's spectacular. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of his best campaigns. It's, it's, it's a model for those campaigns which will follow, both in terms of his military strategy and ability, his, his ability to, to lead men, which is critical to his success. I mean, when you think about Napoleon, it's the ability to lead men uh, that, that, that really sets him uh, out there with Caesar and Alexander, uh, but also his political acumen, his, his understanding of, of what it takes to, to keep the folks happy back home, what it takes to keep the people he has recently conquered happy. Uh, he, he really is a complete package. Uh, and he will be a complete package for just about all the remainder of his career. And we're going to see just how complete he can be uh, in the next episode. Uh, when he comes back to Paris, uh, what he does in Paris is spectacular. Uh, and then what he does when he goes to uh, 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 Egypt is, is, is nothing short of amazing. I'm going to uh, finish, if I may, with uh, two more quotes, uh, two more little stories or anecdotes that I like. He, uh, Napoleon, when he's in uh, 
Vienna, I believe, comes across uh, an enemy straggler, a veteran captain in the Austrian army. Without revealing his identity, Napoleon asks in Italian how things were going. Badly, answered the Austrian. They've sent a young madman who attacks right and left, front and rear. It's an intolerable <laughs> way of waging war. <laughs> oh, a, I've read that, of course, and that's 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 an absolutely wonderful uh, way to express how they saw Napoleon and this 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 guy. He's just he's everywhere. <laughs> and the the final one that I like uh, from around this time, the directors sent a man by the name of Henri Clark, who was a, a desk general, to uh, basically spy on Napoleon. He was attached to his staff. And he was to report back to the directory about wh- what the hell was going on out there. And uh, this was part of his report that he sent back after nine days. He says, He is feared, loved and respected in Italy. I believe he is attached to the Republic and without any ambition, save to retain the reputation he has won. It is a mistake to think he is a party man. He belongs neither to the royalists who slander him, nor to the anarchists whom he dislikes. He has only one guide, the Constitution. But General Buonaparte is not without defects. He does not spare his men sufficiently. Sometimes he is hard, impatient, abrupt or imperious. Often he demands difficult things in too hasty a manner. He has not been respectful enough towards the government commissioners. When I reproved him for this, he replied that he could not possibly treat otherwise men who were universally scorned for their immorality and incapacity. <laughs> so there you go. Well, well that reminds me, David. That quote reminds me of Toulon, where he says, you know, basically, I've got idiots for generals. Send me somebody who's good. <laughs> well, he, he was, he was not, he was not uh, reticent to to criticize those people above him when that criticism was uh, justified, and of course, it was very definitely justified. So, that's been a uh, full show. I think we've probably gone over an hour yet again, but it's been great, the feedback that we got after the last couple of episodes. Uh, unanimously said, take as long as you like. This is a great tale, and everyone seems to be up for it. So thank you again for the feedback, everyone. Thank you, David, for taking time out to come on and, and wax eloquently about Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm always glad to do it. I also want to thank our, our readers and, and our listeners, excuse me, and I want to encourage our listeners to go to the website and leave some feedback. You know, we sit here, each of us in front of our computer screens uh, and uh, some, some written notes and so forth, I suppose, and, and talk about this subject, and we, we have a wonderful time. Uh, but the only way we know whether or not people are enjoying it, are getting something from it, want us to continue, is is by your feedback. So it's really easy. Go in there, leave a message or two, or, or, or send us some emails, whatever you like. But let us know what you think. And if you have any suggestions, uh, any things that you think we should be sure to cover, uh, any questions that you would like answered. I I get lots of questions. I don't always have the answers. And, but between Cameron and I, we, we might be able to answer questions that you have. Uh, but I love it. I'm having a great time, Cameron. And, and it's, it's always a delight to talk with you. And, and, and I'll, I very much look forward to, to the next episode. You're on the Podcast Network. Listen. Learn. Evolve.